Yeah. What do you say to the people who believe we need Trump to be convicted to stop him from running for office again? Good luck with that. Welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. Okay, so today's episode is a Politics Girl Canada conversation with author and lawyer Terry Canefield. Terry is an author and appellate lawyer who has published over a dozen books, as well as articles, essays, stories, and legal briefs over the past 30 years. Her political analysis has been used in the Washington Post, CNN, NBC, and most major news outlets. She had her own private legal practice for 12 years, focusing solely on people whose cases had been decided questionably but couldn't afford a lawyer for appeal. A vocal advocate for the effort we need to put into democracy. If you're not following Terry on Twitter or YouTube, you're absolutely missing out. Her handles are in my bio in the show notes, and I highly recommend you follow her socials because it gives you access to her blog, which is like a treasure trove of brilliant insight on legal and constitutional matters. Terry is such a careful and thoughtful thinker and someone who doesn't get caught up in the drama of the moment. So her perspective has really kept me sane post-insurrection and coup. Whenever I start to feel like justice is never going to come, whenever I start to feel panicky, like everyone's just going to get away with it, I will go and I will read Terry's most recent blog post or tweet, and it brings me back down and allows me to separate my feelings from the facts. I'm having her on today to talk about a very detailed blog post she recently did called Merrick Garland and the January 6th Investigations. It includes 12 parts, which she's continually updating to ensure she's bringing a full perspective to the situation. I got so much out of this post, but I understand that not everyone has the patience to take in that much information. So I asked Terry to come on the pod to walk us through it, and she kindly agreed. So without further ado, please welcome lawyer, author, and my social media legal expert, Terry Canefield. Welcome, Terry. Thank you for having me. I really want you to know that you're such an inspiration to me. You're absolutely brilliant and you explain things so well that I really wanted other people to have the pleasure of your insight. So let's just get right into it. People are justifiably angry right now and confused that nobody in Trump's inner circle or Trump himself have been held accountable for this attempted coup that happened post the 2020 election. It's um, really hard on people. They feel outraged and they feel numb and they feel like democracy and the rule of law is crumbling around them. And I think their worries are justified. It could happen. We could lose democracy, but we're not there yet. And I don't believe it's inevitable. As I said in my other pod that was based on your work, the only way to save democracy is with more democracy. And the only way to save the rule of law is by honoring the rule of law. And that's not rewarding or thrilling, and it's certainly not fast, but a situation like this has never happened before. There's no precedent for it. And if we want to save what we have, which is namely our democracy, uh, we have to do it right. So going through your most recent blog on what's going on with Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice, I want to talk to you about what we can realistically expect moving forward and what traps we should try and avoid falling into when it comes to our appetite for justice. That all sounds great. Um, I would like to add something to what you said. You said there was no precedent for what happened and right. um, we're in completely uncharted te territory. In fact, there was. Um, I would argue that the Civil War and the attack on Fort Sumner was similar. So I wouldn't say unprecedented, but there's obviously a lot of differences because the current situation is obviously not unfolding the same way, fortunately. Um, so we're in new territory and not new territory. We're not divided north and south, but we're still divided in that one party has completely abandoned democracy. 
Yeah, that makes sense. It's not really unprecedented. We have had a division like this in our country before, but not coming maybe from the presidency itself, which is sort of what feels new new to us now. Um, So Merrick Garland came on and was confirmed as attorney general in March 2021. And he's basically been the attorney general for about a year. Um, As of now, more than 800 people have been charged in connection with the insurrection. But people are still feeling really upset because it feels like these are only low-level people, right? These aren't the the masterminds. These are the people who stormed the Capitol that are being held accountable. Um, what's your take on how Garland is approaching this? Well, in a speech on January 5th, Garland explained how the DOJ is conducting this investigation. He says they're building by laying a foundation. They resolve the more straightforward cases first, and those provide evidence for the more complex cases. So, and the people caught on tape actually storming the Capitol are the easiest to catch. Now, think of, I think of it as a ladder. At the bottom are really the suckers who got swept up in the moment and illegally entered the Capitol. Next up would be the vandals, people who got in and then did things they shouldn't do. But then at the very top are the people who strategized. Let's send an angry mob to the Capitol to scare Congress into stopping the counting of the votes. Obviously, they're harder to catch the same way that it's harder to catch someone doing illegal financial things behind a gated community or somebody out in the open robbing a bank. And so it's a little harder to get to them. And so what Garland explained was that they work their way up. So the people who stormed the Capitol can lead to higher ups. People like John Eastman, who wrote that insane legal memo for how Pence could overturn (laughs) the election, he could lead to higher up people. So, and actually the investigation is off the bottom rung. So Joshua James, who pleaded guilty to seditious conspiracy was not actually at the Capitol during the riot. He was one of the planners. So they are, and also in jail right now is Stuart Rhodes and he's the founder of the Oath Keepers. So if you care about dismantling white supremacy groups, the fact that Garland got him and he's in jail is a big deal. Considering the fact that if Trump was president, Stuart Rhodes would be invited to the White House as an honored guest. So (laughs) they are off the bottom rung. Um, And also in an interview, Merrick Garland was asked specifically if he would shy away from indicting a former president. He said, we are not avoiding cases that are political or controversial or sensitive. What we're doing is making decisions based on the evidence. What he doesn't want is for prosecutions to appear political. And I can tell you this, when, if Trump is indicted, he will claim it's political. And uh, democratic governments don't go after rivals. That's what happens in Russia. And so that's what he's gonna claim. Garland also said the investigation won't be complete until everyone is held accountable. He doesn't want this to be political. He wants it to be based on evidence. Which goes back to the thing we were saying about following the rule of law more carefully is what will uphold the rule of law. Uh, Garland, although it might not be sexy, is doing it the way it's supposed to be done. You know, laying the foundation with the smaller people, moving his way up the ladder. And as he said, they're not avoiding cases that are political or controversial or sensitive. Um, They're avoiding making decisions based on a political or partisan basis. 
Um, I think that his deputy attorney general, uh, Lisa Monaco, said that the January 6th investigation is among the most wide ranging and complex one that the department has ever undertaken. She said that the Department of Justice is currently looking to hire 131 more lawyers, which seems like a good step to help prosecute these cases. And she's been really clear that they're going to continue to do this no matter what level the investigations lead them to. And that that should be a good sign, right? Right. And it's what he's been saying from the beginning. And now she is saying it. The Department of Justice itself doesn't generally confirm the existence of or otherwise comment on ongoing investigations. That's correct, right? Why is that? Well, they'll say that a matter is being investigated. So they'll say that we are investigating the, the insurrection, but they don't name people. And here's why. Well, remember when Comey named, he said, we're reopening an investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails. I do remember that. You're, the person's in the hot spot, and it's really not fair. Suppose the FBI got a complaint about you, and they opened an investigation. And they looked at you, and then they said, there's nothing here. Close this. How would you like it if they announced that they opened the investigation? That would devastate you. It would besmirch my entire reputation, yeah. Right, that's right. And that's why it, uh, the, the Trump regime doesn't really care if there's evidence. They just want an investigation because they know that the fact of an investigation will smear somebody. So as a matter of policy, the DOJ doesn't and shouldn't do that. That's why Comey was in so much trouble. So that's why Merrick Garland can say, we are investigating this matter. We will hold everyone accountable, but he won't name names. Now, you say, people say, well, this is really serious, so he should. But you don't break rules because you want to. You follow the rules. And so um, he, can't he can't say anything more. But it seems to me saying everyone will be held accountable is pretty strong language. Yeah, no, it is pretty strong language. And, I, you know, at the beginning of this month, in response to this pressure that Garland is getting um, to bring charges, you pointed out that Garland had said the only pressure I'm feeling and the only pressure that prosecutors feel is to do the right thing, which means we follow the facts and the law wherever they lead, which sounds right to me, but it is slow. And how do you see this speed and this kind of meticulous focus on dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's? Because from the outside to anyone who's paying attention, even marginal attention to this case against Trump and his co-conspirators, you know, the PowerPoint presentation, the collusion with the military, the refusal to call in the National Guard on 1-6, the plan to have the senators object to the electoral counts, this attempt to strong arm electors and states to find votes for him. It makes a lot of people feel like... This case should pretty much be a slam dunk, right? And you are an appellate lawyer who deals with cases all the time. And so what do you say to people who feel like that? Like this is, it's so obvious, right? Just do the thing well, already. You know, two answers. One, the fact that it's so complicated and that it's so far flung. <laughs> I mean, this, this conspiracy is enormous. Almost everybody's involved in it in some way. Lots of people are involved in it hundreds, thousands. Yeah. And so you have to get all that evidence. It's a lot harder than getting some a bank robber because you need all of the evidence. You need to find all the evidence because you, you that's what they do. They don't stop halfway and say, well, we're not going to worry about all the other evidence. We're just going to stop with what we have. They have to complete the investigation. The other thing is that sometimes things can appear airtight and they're not. 
You had a great example in your blog post about uh, a case you had done that seemed completely airtight. And then you walked in as a defense lawyer and you were like, mm, not so fast. Can you tell that story? Well, and the reason I tell this story is because telling people things can look airtight and they're not doesn't have much meaning, right? You have needed right. an example. So here's a story of a young and arrogant federal prosecutor who was absolutely sure he had a case against my client. Now, to be fair, the case looked airtight. My client was caught red-handed with illegal drugs, plus she confessed. Can't get more airtight than that, right? Right, right. Confession, caught with the thing. So the prosecutor's like, we're going with this. We're going with this. And he filed. Turns out he didn't get all the facts. The fact, my client was sleeping in the backseat of a truck. Further back in the truck were illegal drugs. The truck driver owned the truck. He was also her boyfriend. He was also married, but obviously not to her. So there she was sleeping in the back of the truck when the truck driver drove onto an Air Force base right past the sign that says all vehicles passing this point are subject to search. Now, the purpose of the sign is obvious. If you drive past the sign, you consent to the search. If you consent, the search is legal under the Fourth Amendment, which says no unreasonable searches and seizures. You can't just like stop a truck and look for drugs. But the guy drove past the sign. So my client woke up as the officers were searching the truck. Her boyfriend, in a panic, took her aside and said, you got to say the drugs are yours. If I get charged, I'll lose my job. So she did it. She confessed. She was charged with a federal crime because they were on federal property. Now, first, I tried to talk the prosecutor out of insisting on jail time, which would have ruined this poor woman. Six months in jail, three months in jail would have ruined her, completely ruined her. I don't know how her life would have gone on. Prosecutor wouldn't budge. So I cogitated on this a while. And I filed a motion arguing that the search was illegal as to her because she was sleeping when he drove past the sign. It felt like a, maybe a little bit of a long shot, but guess what? The judge agreed with me. Because she couldn't agree to a, a search that she had never read the sign because she was asleep. So the search itself was she illegal. She didn't consent to the search. So that was my Right. Argument. So then anything they searched was not under her consent. So then anything they found in the search was not admissible. <laughs> right. So... Oh, oh, and by the way, um, the judge did agree with me, and the prosecutor suddenly saw the light, and I'll just tell you that everything ended very satisfactorily for my client. I just have to say, but like, so what you're saying is sometimes things that seem airtight, so airtight, she had, you had a confession, you had the drugs, you had her there, doesn't end up being airtight if the defense can come up with something. So you have to be so careful. Um, because right. to me, the only thing worse than Trump getting away with this would be Trump getting away with it because we rushed it and he got off on some weird technicality and ended up as some martyr to a witch hunt. I would rather wait and have it be exactly right than have the prosecution think they have something airtight and then he gets away with it. Well, and I don't think Merrick Garland is going to make that mistake, but people right. on Twitter, people on Twitter think that. I even had actually a, a journalist with a very, very large following said any first year law student could get a conviction just based on the evidence out on Google. Now, we have something called the federal rules of evidence and there's no Google exception. <laughs> so you can't, all of the evidence you see out there in the media, that's not admissible in court. So journalists rely on anonymous sources. That's, none of that is admissible. Evidence, you can't have hearsay. You have to have the statements given under oath. You have to have. So I don't think that Merrick Garland or the DOJ is going to be the, as foolish as this young prosecutor I'm telling you about. Also, I don't think Trump has very good defense lawyers. Um, but 
but the people on people on social media see all this evidence and the federal rules of evidence are very complicated. And the reason is that evidence has to meet certain standards before it can be used against a person. Well, let me ask you, because I understand where these people are coming from, right? They just want to see some sort of justice and accountability happen. But let me back you up to what you were talking about when you mentioned Joshua James and the Oath Keepers before. Joshua James, in case anyone doesn't know, is the leader of the Alabama chapter of the Oath Keepers, who has recently just, as Terry said, pleaded guilty to seditious conspiracy and obstruction of Congress and for trying to prevent the peaceful transfer of power after the 2020 election, which is a big deal because he not only wasn't there, um, but he's agreed to the fact that he was trying to prevent the peaceful transfer of power. So that was his purpose in in being involved. Now, you said in your blog post four things that you thought were notable about this guilty plea. Do you want to walk me through those things? So what the Justice Department managed in this case is they get to skip the trial. They go right to conviction. So they lined up a conviction for this guy um, because he pled guilty to these facts. He was also, as you said, he wasn't there. He was one of the planners, which which is important. And he admitted to um, something that they're all denying, which was that the purpose wasn't a peaceful protest. The purpose, the reason they were there was to stop the transfer of power. Yeah, that's a big deal. You have to appreciate what, what the DOJ accomplished with this, because he's also cooperating with prosecutors. He has agreed to testify to a grand jury. Now, here's why he's doing it. He's doing it because here's how prosecutors do this. They come in and they say, we're going to charge you with this and this and this and this and this and this and this. And when you add all this up, you're in jail for 150 years. But we'll drop a few of these charges in exchange for. Okay, so the negotiation doesn't sound quite like that, but that's basically the idea. No, that's a gist. And it, and it speaks to us in the language of law and order that we understand. Here's what you've done. Here's how long you're going away. Unless you give us information on X, Y, and Z, in which case we can limit your sentence. And that is what's happening with Joshua James. Right. Sometimes you can get a fee, re- a reduction, a huge reduction just by pleading guilty because you take away this, you take away the trial. So the trial, a trial is always uncertain for the prosecution. Because the standards are very high beyond a reasonable doubt. You never really know what a jury is going to do. This is one of the things right. that people forget who are demanding indictments. You don't really know what a jury is going to do. So if you say, okay, look, if you just reduce it all and I'll just admit to this and I'll go to jail for this many years instead of this many years and there's no trial, the defendant gets something out of that too. So it's a it's an agreement. Now, um, in exchange for whatever it was that um, Joshua James is getting, Um, One of the things that he agreed to do is testify, and that means he has to say everything he knows, and that means he's turning over his telephone, he's turning over all of his text messages, he's turning over everything. So I don't know if people have enough sense that anybody who communicated with Joshua James is sort of in trouble, Um, and he has direct ties to Roger Stone. What nobody can tell you is well, this will lead to Roger Stone and get Roger Stone because you can't say the result of an investigation ahead of time because then it's all fixed. Right. You're not saying we're doing this to get Roger Stone because that would be a fixed plan. They just just keep their mouth shut and do their work. Roger Stone should be pretty worried right now. Because James was cooperating with the investigators and he was in Roger Stone's hotel room, right? The morning of the insurrection? Oh, yeah, yeah. He was his bodyguard. They were buds. I mean, yeah. (laughs) So, So, um, yeah. Right. So so if I were Roger Stone, I'd be worried. Um, And one of the things that happens 
with the way we get information, it's like this sort of fire hose. We're just like sprayed with so many facts and there's so much speculation out there. And this person said this and this person said that. We lose the facts. We lose the facts of how significant this is. And actually, one other thing that's very significant about this, and then we'll move on. Um, we don't really try people for treason in this country because treason is in the Constitution. And it's very, Constitution defines treason as we have to be at war with a country, meaning a declared war from Congress. So even when people were giving trade secrets to the Russians during the Cold War, they weren't convicted for um, treason. So we basically don't have a treason statute because it's so difficult. Seditious conspiracy is what we have. That's the closest you're going to get to treason because the insurrection had nothing to do with another country that we were at war with. Even if you tried to draw a connection to another country, there's not a declared war with Congress. So the closest we're going to get to a treason conviction in America is seditious conspiracy. And they've already charged one person in connection with a very close tie to seditious conspiracy. They already have a conviction for that. So for right now, so that so it's it's very significant. And unfortunately, that gets lost because, well, why hasn't why isn't Trump in jail? So we don't care about anything else. Well, we should care about it because these are the facts. Well, I mean, ideally the prosecutors want the people in the bottom to give away some people in the middle and the people in the middle to plead guilty and turn over evidence about people that are higher up because you want those big fish, right? But it takes longer to get the big fish. Particularly if you want it airtight. What you want is you want as few trials as possible and as many guilty pleas as you can get. And there are different ways of conducting an investigation. And this is the way Garland does it, and this is the way they are doing it, which is work work your way up. Start with the simpler and work to the more complicated. Right. Now you pointed out that the end of last month we also learned that over the past two months, the federal grand jury in Washington has been issuing subpoena requests to a number of officials that are in Trump's close orbit who assisted in the planning and the funding and the executing of the January 6th rally. Why do you see that as important? Well, while everybody was shouting that Trump isn't, nobody in Trump's circle was being investigated, the DOJ was quietly issuing these subpoenas. And they want to keep this airtight. They want you don't want, when you're conducting an investigation, you don't want anyone to know what you have. And I can tell you from the viewpoint of a defense counsel, when the prosecutor invites you into his office for a little chat and you're representing a client, what everybody is worried about is what the prosecution has. Because the, def the, the defendant knows what's out there, but doesn't know what the prosecution has. So if you if you're sure what if you're sure the prosecution does or doesn't have certain items and you can concoct your story around that. But you can't really concoct a story or or coordinate a story if you don't know what they've got. And if the prosecution happens to have all of the emails that you sent, you want to make sure you don't go in and lie about the contents of the emails and then they yank it out. They they need to keep the investigation as quiet as possible. Yeah, but you talk about how there's this great social media prosecutor love affair going on where even though some might think they understand the law, we as consumers of Twitter or YouTube or whatever, we don't really understand the law. And so we look to these prosecutors online with their big followings who say, this is the way I would be doing it. This is how I would be doing it. They're not being bold enough. They need to do this or Garland is never going to do this or 
the, uh, the indictments are just a day away. They all have these big ideas and they put them out on social media and they rile those of us who don't really understand the law up until we think, until we're in a froth, until we say, well, why isn't this happening? And why isn't this going on? And you talk about mediocre prosecutors versus good defense lawyers. And this idea that these people who are online riling people up maybe don't really have all the facts. But they certainly don't know the evidence. They certainly have not seen the evidence. They don't know what's in there. Um, Right, I'll I'll make another distinction. There are good prosecutors and bad prosecutors. So the the low level prosecutor from the viewpoint of um, the defense lawyers are fungible, they're a dime a dozen. Lots of people go out of law school and get one of these like entry level prosecutor jobs. Um, I'm not too impressed um, in general. There are good prosecutors um, who work their way up and there are assistant prosecutors who work under supervision and who are never promoted to higher levels. Now, many of the former prosecutors opining about how Garland should be running his investigation never advanced past low-level supervised. In other words, to put it bluntly, they would not be qualified for Garland's job. And yet they're second-guessing Garland's job on public to their 500,000 followers daily. Right. And and they get really mad if anybody questions them. Um, I think one of the issues we have is how we get our information and separating speculation from fact. Yeah. Well, we, we hear this all the time. If Biden had appointed someone that was more of a dog with a bone, if they had appointed someone who was more aggressive, if they had appointed someone different, then the, we would have different reactions. We'd be going straight for Trump. Forget all these low-level people. We would go straight for Trump. But that's probably not the best way to get an airtight case against Trump, right? To go straight for Trump. That's a probably, it sounds like a pretty good way to have Trump, as the other prosecutor said, be acquitted. Well, here's what we can say for sure. We can say that uh, Merrick Garland has made the decision that the, pro- that the investigation will go ground up. It might be possible, this other one prosecutor says he'd go straight for the top. Um, building a foundation does seem more sensible. Right. And so you don't put um, you don't put your flag on your house before you've built the house. It would seem like that. And also, I mean, just look (laughs) at this. How much how much easier would it be to if if um, Roger Stone has criminal liability? And I would assume he does. um, How much easier it is to get to him if his buddy is turning over everything against him? Right. It just makes sense to me. Right. So I think some of some of these former prosecutors have really interesting things to say. And um, I I think the advice I would give is make sure to distinguish speculation from facts. Right. And clickbait from facts, because at the end of the day, saying, you know, I would have done this differently is more powerful than like, yeah, it's methodical and boring and he's probably doing the right thing. That's not such a great tweet. But let me just switch gears completely for you. You have this section in your piece that is questions that are frequently asked of you and comments that you've read that you think require an explanation. Could we go through them a little bit here? Absolutely. Great. Okay. So, um, one, we were just talking about this. Garland isn't doing anything. If he were, people would be getting subpoenaed. They'd be being hauled in front of the grand jury. We would know people would be talking. There's this section in your piece where you talk about, you were quoting an experienced criminal defense lawyer, Mark Reichel, and you had him weigh in. And he said that the things he found really interesting was that exactly what you were saying. This investigation needs to be flawless, that those of us who are on the outside need to understand two things. One, once an indictment is filed, the government can't use that indictment to develop more evidence or get more stuff for trial. 
that's an illegal use of the grand jury. So once an indictment is made, the prosecution can't keep adding supporting evidence or documents or different people that will testify, which is why the case needs to be complete and airtight before you make the indictment. Can you speak to that? Is that correct? Well, now, the reason I asked Mark about this is because he has handled much more complex cases than I have. I did a short stint in trial work, and I mostly handled appeals. Um, and so that's a whole different, I did criminal appeals, but that's a whole different thing. So this is what he says. I say, absolutely. The, the other thing is that, um, is that there's ways of getting this information that people don't hear about. So there's this assumption, if they were investigating people higher up, then they'd be subpoenaing people and they'd be crying and defying subpoenas. Well, not all witnesses are hostile witnesses. And there's ways that the government can subpoena information that you never know. So you can, they can subpoena records with a gag order. Um, they can also do search warrants that you don't know. So if the way that the government gets a search warrant, like let's say they say uh, that, you know, that politics girl, she's doing some illegal stuff on her phone. They have to have, first off, they have to have, they won't be able to do it because they have to have probable cause to believe that you're doing something. And it's a very low standard. So if they have probable cause to believe that you're conducting some kind of criminal activity or a cover up or anything, they go to a judge and they get a search warrant. And this is secret. You don't know. And then they can listen in and they can, they can search you without you knowing it. And depending on what it is that they're searching, you might not know they have this until you find out. Um, and so there's all kinds of ways that prosecutors can be gathering information without anybody knowing. And what we can assume is that they're doing everything that they can to keep people from knowing right now. And so the fact that that one subpoena was made public that happened in January, as I see that is their need for those documents. They weren't able to get the documents any other way. So they had to do a regular subpoena, knowing eventually this was going to leak out. So their, their need for that finally overweighed their desire to keep it secret. So the fact that, so there's an assumption, if they're, if they're investigating anybody in Trump's circle, they'd be hauling these uncooperative witnesses before a grand jury. Maybe not. There are enough people who are who step forward in Trump's inner circle. There are enough people who step forward who are willingly testifying. There are Republicans who are connected to Trump, who were in this inside, who were horrified and are willing to talk because they don't want the Republican Party to be the Trump Party. So there's an assumption that all witnesses are hostile witnesses. Now, hostile witnesses are gonna you're gonna hear about it. So if they subpoena Giuliani to come testify in front of the grand jury. You're going to know about that because Giuliani is going to make some noise. Well, another thing that Mark said that I thought was really fascinating was that we need to remember that the government agents speak with one voice across the country. So if an assistant U.S. attorney in one state calls a defendant a liar in federal court, then when that defendant goes on to be a witness for the government later on, if they flip, then the defense counsel can use what the government said about that witness in the first case to discredit their testimony. So they say, you know, the government already called this person a liar, so why should we believe their testimony now? And that seems very reasonable. That's why we can't just rely on Michael Cohen saying Trump did this because Michael Cohen has already proved himself to be an unreliable witness. And these things are things we need to take into account when we talk about criminal convictions. Yeah, like Michael Cohen's testimony would have to be corroborated. A good defense lawyer could, would take him apart on cross-examination. 
there are superseding indictments. You can bring a superseding indictment later, but that could be that's part of the strategy. That's when you say, okay, we've got enough now. We we know there may be superseding indictments, but it's all strategized when you bring indictments against who, what, what you want to reveal when. And there are so many different strands of this conspiracy, right? There's the send them to the Capitol and have them create a ruckus and stop the voting. And then there's the Eastman, let's overturn, let's have Congress and Pence overturn the election. And then there's let's pressure the states. And then there's let's do a, a disinformation campaign. It's mind boggling to me to think about all those different strands and that a single person could be involved in more than one of those strands and how you decide when you're going to be bringing each of these you know, additional indictments that they waited on the Joshua James. They wait until they're ready because, it's, because Roger Stone is now on notice that all of his communications with Joshua James are now turned over to the prosecution. Exactly. We can't afford to miss a single step and everyone needs to be on the same page. And now we're going to take a quick break for some messages from our sponsors. And we'll be right back with Terry Keenfield talking justice for America. The Politics Girl podcast is now sponsored by Credit Karma. Are you paying down old credit card debt like me? Did you start a business or have to put medical bills on a credit card like I did? Well, according to Credit Karma, a personal loan could be the solution to the stress of paying those insanely high monthly bills. Loans usually come with a fixed monthly payment, making them a simple way to help pay off your debt. Plus, loans usually have a lower interest rate than credit cards, and Credit Karma can help you find the best option for your needs. I really have to do this. It's incredibly frustrating paying 20 whatever percent each month. It just feels like you're throwing money down the toilet. Credit Karma uses your credit data to find loan offers that are personalized to you, so you can have a better idea of what loan amount you can get approved for. Credit Karma will even show you your chances of approval, so you can choose between loan offers that you're more likely to get approved for and apply with more confidence. Comparing loan offers on Credit Karma is 100% free and won't affect your credit scores. Ready to apply? Head to creditkarma.com slash loan offers to see your personalized offers. Go to creditkarma.com slash loan offers to find the loan that's right for you. That's creditkarma.com slash loan offers. Paying down cards can be stressful. Anything we can do to make it less painful and expensive seems like a good thing to me. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. I'm such a big fan of therapy. I originally got a therapist to deal with one specific issue about one specific person. I didn't go for me. I went to have a better idea of how to deal with someone else. But over time, I realized it was me who really needed the work. Yes, the other person did too, but they weren't going to do it. And the only person I had control over was myself. How I was handling things. How I looked at the world. What had led me to the choices I made and the positions I found myself in. How could I make better decisions and choices to serve myself better? I've now been in therapy for years. It's one of the best things I've ever done for myself. I'm infinitely happier. I have better coping mechanisms. I have a safe place to explore my feelings and fears and anxiety. I honestly don't know what I'd do without it. I recommend therapy to everyone. You have to live with yourself your whole life. So why not put time and effort into that person? It's one of the smartest things you can do. And with BetterHelp, you can find a therapist in under 48 hours. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can get started right away with your own licensed therapist. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. 
Right now, Politics Girl listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash Politics Girl. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Politics Girl. Today's podcast is sponsored by Blinkist. Blinkist is a book summarizing subscription service that allows you to read or listen to the key insights from best-selling nonfiction books in around 15 minutes. When you sign up for Blinkist, you fill out this type of quiz so they know what you're interested in. And Blinkist will populate your account with books, collection, and podcast summarizing services they think you might be interested in. This week, I got an email from one of their editors suggesting a book by Catherine Price called The Power of Fun. The book is about the difficulty of finding happiness because we all think we have to achieve X, Y, or Z first. But Price suggests it's more about finding happiness in our everyday lives. But she goes on to say, if that's so flippin' easy to do, why haven't more of us found it? She argues that's the fault of our always-on, tech-addicted lifestyle. And she goes on to show you how to detox from your devices and rediscover your joy. Or, as the subtitle of her book says, how to feel alive again. How is that not worth 26 minutes of your time? Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash politicsgirl to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. Blinkist is perfect for busy, curious people who just run out of time to read, or even people who wish they could read but just aren't that into reading. You get the key ideas from best-selling nonfiction in literally minutes, not hours. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash politicsgirl to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash politicsgirl. And we're back with author and lawyer Terry Canefield breaking down what is going on with Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice. Okay, so one of the examples you use around this idea that Garland is doing nothing is the recent high-profile resignations that were in New York when the two prosecutors that have been investigating the Trump organization very publicly resigned because of their apparent frustration with their boss's lack of action or choices on the case. And you make the argument that if Merrick Garland was in fact lying to the public and had no intention of investigating or or taking uh, this Trump thing seriously— or people close to Trump seriously, that there would be talk, and even in New York, like public resignations, that this idea that all of these DOJ lawyers would just be sitting on their hands as Garland lies to the public is just so incredibly unlikely. Right. Look at the disjoint between what Garland is saying and what people are saying. So Garland is saying, we are we are going to hold everybody accountable. And people are saying he's already decided he's not going to indict Trump. I mean, these are direct opposites. And so if Garland was lying about what they're doing, think of all those career prosecutors who are sitting there allowing him to lie to the public. I mean, if in fact he decided he's not going to go after Trump, somebody would know that. It's just just sort of impossible to imagine that they're all sitting there. But all I'm really doing right now is taking Garland at his word because there's no reason not to. So to assume that he's lying and to assume that they're that when he tells the public this is ongoing and we're not going to this is going to take a while but we're going to get everybody to assume that he's not telling the truth it seems to me you know they talk about the Occam's razor what's the most likely it's okay let's say another there's more evidence to support Garland is telling the truth than there is evidence to support he's lying yeah evidence like how he handled the uh, Oklahoma bombing case 
you know, and that was completely silent until he had an actual conviction ready to go. You know, like he was mm -hmm. very, very good at that job and he was not a big showy guy about it, you know. And I think on the other side, there's just pure speculation. Well, we haven't heard anything, therefore that means, right? So I think the weight of the evidence right now says that we can take him at his word. Do you think people have just been burned? They thought that we would get a conviction, something big would happen with the Mueller report. We thought Trump would be impeached twice. He was, and, well, he was. You know, people felt disappointed and so they don't want to be disappointed again. So they're going to blame Garland for messing this up rather than having the patience to wait for this to be done properly. Let's look at it this way. Let's talk about expectations. If you certain expectations are never going to be met and they're not realistic. So six months before Nancy Pelosi um, started impeachment proceedings against Trump, people with huge accounts were saying he needs to be impeached to keep him. He needs to be impeached so that he'll be stopped. Now, at the time, nobody really understood how impeachment worked. So I was saying, no, impeachment is just an accusation. Impeachment doesn't mean he's going to be removed. It, impeachment doesn't stop it. And you need two thirds of the Senate to remove him. But people said Nancy Pelosi is enabling him by not impeaching him and she should be impeaching him every day. The reason he's continuing to be horrible is because he hasn't been impeached. OK, he's impeached. Well, guess what? Impeachment is like an indictment. Then you have a trial. And in this case, the trial is the Senate. <laughs> and the Senate was never going to remove him. OK, so people. People said, well, but he needed to be indicted to prove. Okay, so he was indicted twice. I mean, he was impeached twice. And then there were never any consequences. Well, there, there can't be any more consequence than impeach because you can't control the Senate. So in other words, the problem with Trump's lawbreaking as a president wasn't that he wasn't impeached enough. It was that he was being shielded by the Senate. Which is something that our justice and our, our law and our constitution couldn't have counted on. Having an entire party shielding somebody. A law-breaking president. Exactly. A law-breaking president. And you were talking about expectations. And like on a scale of one to a hundred, if our expectations are on a scale of one to a hundred, how do you see it playing out? Well, let's say 100 is um, Trump goes to prison for a long time. That's the okay. top, right? That's, that's his mo the most you're going to get. And then one is right. he's never even indicted. Here's the thing. The, the reality is going to fall somewhere in there. Okay. Because not um, somewhere in between. It's going to fall somewhere. Right. right. Now, I can guarantee you that people who say, I want justice, what they want is number 100. And anything less right. is not going to make them happy. In fact, he has faced no consequences for that insurrection. Well, actually, he did because the insurrection failed <laughs> and he was kicked out of the White House. So how is that not like a consequence? Like no consequences would mean it succeeded and he's still in the White House. If, if you expect 100 and anything less than 100 means there hasn't been justice and there are no consequences, then you're going to be disappointed. Lawyers do something called, um, they manage expectations. So the client says, I'm going to sue for a bazillion dollars. Well, you're going to have to manage your client's expectations. I think that people throw around these vague terms like consequences and accountability and justice. Well, I do that, um, but yeah, well, I don't like it. And actually, one of the stereotypes <laughs> that that defense attorneys have about prosecutors is that they come in and they wave around their fists and they talk about justice and truth and righteousness, where defense attorneys are in trying to pick apart the facts. Right. 
Um, the problem with all of these expectations is that you will be disappointed. You will, because if Trump's indicted, that won't be enough because there's a trial. Or if Trump gets a short prison sentence, that won't be enough because it should be a long prison sentence. And I think with the Mueller report, because the expectations were so unrealistic, they overlooked all the amazing things that happened. Yeah, and I, I think people get frustrated because all those people that were caught up in the Mueller report all got pardoned by Trump. So well, I think that's why that's, people get frustrated. There you go. But Manafort spent time in jail. They they are still guilty. They have these. So the same thing. We want we want indictments. We want indictments. That's going to save the planet unless you elect another law-breaking president who's just going to pardon them all. So right. so I think that the reason Ugh. people feel. Right. But the reason people feel like there are never any consequences, I I believe, is because consequences and accountability can't do what people want it to do. And it never will. So they're never going to feel like there's right. accountability. So you address the fact that people keep saying they need to see indictments. They need these indictments. This is what you're saying. Um, the Garland should just indict Trump now and then up the charges later. But that's a bad idea, right? Because that goes back to what you were saying about then the defendant gets to see all the evidence and then they can start getting their ducks in order. So you want to wait. It's all about timing, that when indictments are brought is actually part of the overall strategy for prosecutors, right? You want right. Can you walk me through a little bit of that? I, I feel like that's speedy trial, double jeopardy kind of stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of, in there. I mean... Um, when people were saying, just indict them now on what we have, I was thinking, wow, that's a defense lawyer's dream. So if my client said, oh my God, they indicted me and they don't know half of it, I'd say, well, let's go to trial right now on what they've got. Because you can't come back later with more evidence because the Constitution also has a double jeopardy. Let me just clarify. Double jeopardy is you can't be tried twice for the same crime. Correct. So I'm sorry. I just... they find a whole bunch of more information later. Yeah, about no, that? We're just not right. lawyers, Terry. We're not lawyers. I'm sorry. But if, <laughs> if, you come, if you take me to trial and I say, holy hell, they don't have half of what is on me. And you're like, great, let's do the trial right now. They can't come back later and say, oh, we also found out that you did this, 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 and this. And you're like, well, you already took me to trial, so you can't do it again. That's so correct. they have to wait. There is a... There is a period of time in which the the prosecutors have to finesse when to bring something to trial so they have enough that they're not trying to jam things on in the middle of the trial or ha find things later that they can never bring to trial because they already did the case. Is that... I think they want it all. I I think that in a, in a, in a high-profile case like this, they want all the evidence. They, they want no stone unturned. They want, they want all the evidence. And so... Um, so yeah, it would be a it would be a terrible idea. Not to mention, not to mention the fact that if you start bringing indictments just to show we have indictments, how is that not political? And if you right. if you keep if you keep going after the same person, even if you can find then other it starts charges, to look it starts to look like a witch hunt. It, it starts it, to it, look it, like it you're throwing the kitchen sink at them. Right. What's the difference? So if you say, okay, we can get Trump right now on this easy thing. So let's get him on this easy, easy thing. And then, okay, this easy thing, nothing much happens to him or he's, you don't have all the evidence. It's just a little bitty thing. And then you say, okay, now we got something else bigger. Let's get him on that. Ooh, now we have something else even bigger. Let's get him on that. If I was representing a client and prosecutors kept going after my client, I would definitely be in there saying, what are you doing targeting my client? You know, this yeah. looks... It, it looks political. And so um, and so interestingly, some of the things that people want 
Merrick Garland to do would actually politicize the DOJ. And politicizing the DOJ is really bad. That's what Trump It would weaken their case and weaken their position. Yeah. And weaken democracy. That would be the end. So weaken democracy. All right. Right. That would be the end. So you know, um, in an autocracy, the autocrat decides who is going to be prosecuted. That's what Trump wanted. Trump wanted to tell Barr who to prosecute. They, they still want to do that. Yeah. Putin decides who's going to be prosecuted. In, a, in an era of sort of mob rule, lynchings, the mob decides who to prosecute. So we have a system of independent prosecutors who are supposed to be making their decisions, not based on political pressure or who they like and don't like, but based on the facts. And there are a lot of things that go into the decision. But politicizing the DOJ takes you out of democracy right there. And you're saying, you know, this is what the Republicans are suggesting right now. They are running on the idea that if they get back into power, they're going to lock up Adam Schiff or lock up Dr. Fauci or put so-and-so on trial. And that is what you're saying autocrats do, where they decide who goes to trial, not an independent uh, system of justice, but the people in charge get to decide who goes to jail. The people right. in charge get to decide who's put on trial. And then our version of mob rule is sort of what we're seeing on Twitter. This is what should be happening. This is what should be doing. We should be doing this. We also don't get a say. That's why we need a completely independent judiciary that's working on their own in the Department of Justice, quietly away from the rest of us, but they are not serving us the mob and they are not serving the leader, which is why Biden's not in there like, hey, do this, do this, do this, because he really has no say in this. It's not the leader's job. It's the independent Justice Department's job. And that is why we don't hear much. And we should feel um, vindicated for democracy that that we're not hearing that much because it means that those two sides are separate. And what... Uh, the Republicans are offering us is a completely enmeshed Department of Justice and leadership. And that leads us into the world of autocracy. Imagine with all these scenarios that, right, the Republicans are getting in and they're making no secret about it. They're going to go after Adam Schiff. They're going to go after Hunter Biden. Imagine how, what if it looked really to everybody, including us, if we were honest, that Garland was bringing political prosecutions? How would we be different? I mean, you could say, well, we're different because Trump's really bad, but political prosecutions, they're political prosecutions. So it would be a disaster for American democracy if Garland appeared to be bringing political um, prosecutions because the average person then isn't going to see a difference. We're just as bad. If we do it, if we do it, we're just as bad and we've abandoned democracy too, which is exactly what the people who want to abandon democracy want. If we all give up on it, then... But if Garland had the appearance of being political, that would start to degrade the institution. Yeah. What do you say to the people who believe we need Trump to be convicted to stop him from running for office again? Good luck with that. (laughs) First off, nothing stops Trump from running again if he's indicted. I suppose he could run from prison. Um, We do have the 14th uh, section in the 14th Amendment. But what about all the other wannabe Trumps? You can't put them all in jail. So I think there are good reasons to want to see Trump ultimately indicted and ultimately served with a prison sentence. But the idea that that will therefore keep a Trump-like figure from being elected again, uh, it's, a, it's a separate issue. What about the people who keep talking about taking the gloves off and playing as dirty as they play because they're just sick of losing? This other group has already broken so many rules, so why are we playing by the rules? That goes back to what we were saying about 
keeping democracy, right? So, right, I've heard that too. Um, you can't go by the book when the book is burning. Okay, so this is sound, this is one of the things that sound really good, but then I start thinking, so what book? What's the book? Um, I think the book is the rules, the norms, the laws. Um, to begin with, people are breaking laws, but that doesn't mean the, the laws are burning. People all, always break laws. The idea that, that somehow you're going to, that because law breaking is happening, therefore there, there is no rule of law. That's not what rule of law means. Rule of law doesn't mean everybody follows the law. Rule of law means that there's not an autocrat. We follow procedures that we ha we have a certain procedures. So when people say the book is burning, I hear that as well. I guess the rule book and the norm book. So we're supposed to throw them out. Now, if if the book is the law books, and if one side has already thrown the book out, and then if the other side throws the book out, then there is no more book. Then it seems to me that's the quickest way to get rid of rule of law and norms and democracy. That's the end of it. Right, which goes back to what I said on my podcast that was based on your work. Don't try and out-fascist the fascists, right? Because if both sides abandon the rule of law, then both sides really are the same. The cynics, as you say, would be correct that everyone cheats, so it doesn't matter who's in power because they're all the same. If you throw out the book, and the book, as we're saying, is the rule of law, then it just disappears. And the people who don't want the rule of law, who are already ignoring it, who are already working around it, they win because it's gone and that's what they wanted, but we're the ones that helped them destroy it. So in this case, we have to keep following by the book because it keeps the book in the game. I think what the Biden administration is trying to do is prove that democracy works. And I think they have to prove that also to Democrats and people on the left who I think don't really, don't really embrace rule of law and democracy. Democracy is frustrating. Democracy requires compromise. You don't always get what you want. So I think that what the what Merrick Garland is trying to do is reestablish rule of law in the Justice Department. And what Biden is trying to do is prove that democracy works. Will they succeed? That's another question. That remains to be seen. But someone someone has to defend democracy and the rule of law. Well, what about all these January 6 committee subpoenas that have been ignored? by the Trump people like Mark Meadows, who have just refused to go in and testify and then are held in contempt. And then to the rest of us, it looks like then nothing happens. They just go, don't go in. And we all think, well, geez, Louise, if I was subpoenaed and I didn't go, I'd be in jail. So what's going on with these guys? I'm going to pick apart everything you just said. <laughs> first, I know it's going to be I'm ready. Fun. Defense attorney me. Are you I'm ready? ready. Are you ready? ready? Okay. So first you said the yeah. rest, I yeah. think you said, if I heard the rest of people would just be in jail if they defied a subpoena, right? I'm going to read you right. from, this is from 43 U.S. Code 104. Punishment for ignoring a subpoena upon conviction shall be a fine of not more than $200 or imprisonment not to exceed 90 days. Um, so this is a little bitty thing. And most of the time it's a fine. So when people, one of my pet peeves is if I did that, I'd be in jail. Well, actually, if you did that, you yeah. would first be indicted and then you'd have a trial. And probably if you defied a subpoena, you'd get a fine. Um, so there's that. Now, hole poked. Hole one. Oh, hole one. Okay. This is what you do poked. with the evidence. This is, yeah. what the defense, this is what the defense does when they see the evidence. Evidence. Poke, 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 right? Okay. So uh, none of them have suffered any consequences. Well, except for Steve Bannon, who is indicted and is facing trial this summer for a contempt of Congress. So it's also not true to say that none of them are 
facing any consequences. Steve Bannon. Um, but he still has his podcast. He's still on a podcast guess every what? single day. Guess what? And, and $200 fine or 90 days in jail, he's going to be out with his podcast. So the, the thing about these I little... Know. You can't do anything about it. They don't, 90, unfortunately, 90 days in jail only hurts a client like the ones I represent, who 90 days in jail will, right. des- will destroy them. Lose their job. Ben and, is going to come out yeah. just like he did before. Okay, so, and then as far as Meadows, now Garland, met, Garland addressed a question about Meadows, and he was very careful with his words, and he used the word ongoing. The, the DOJ doesn't have, it, it's a referral. They're not on any schedule that the Congress can set for them, because these are separate branches of government. They're not going to indict him for, for contempt if they're in, investigating him for other crimes. And in fact, sometimes they like to keep these little crimes in reserve, because that's why I like lying to Congress is kind of a good one. So if you want some little crimes in reserve, so you have something to bargain with, so plead guilty to these little things, and then we'll drop the big things. They're not going to just rush off and indict him if there is an ongoing investigation. And Garland was very careful. So he said it's an ongoing, and he paused, and he said ongoing referral. And the reason he stopped himself from saying ongoing investigation, because if he said ongoing investigation, he just, he just violated the rules by saying they're investigating Meadows, because you're not supposed to name a person. So... He said it's an ongoing referral. So this this idea that Mark Meadows is just cruising around and had no, all these words you hate, accountability, no justice, no, nothing happened to him is actually yeah. not true. We just don't know what's going on Something's right now. Something's ongoing. Just and then an we're back ongoing to, referral. Right. And yes. then we're back to like, okay, Merrick Garland said ongoing. Am I naive for taking him at his word? I mean, he said it's ongoing. So what we have to assume right now is we don't know what's going to happen with Mark Meadows. But I can tell you, it appears that he has a lot of criminal liability in this matter. So we'll see. But you can understand this idea that people feel that white men with power and influence seem to get away with everything in America. Because I can't even imagine this country continuing if no one is held accountable for the insurrection. Well, except someone has been. So you mean if Trump isn't accountable, right? Or yes, you mean, I think I do. Yeah, because or his inner circle. His inner circle. Yeah, right. And right now, it appears that that's going to happen, but not on not on any time that we can dictate. And maybe and you would say that lots of people have been held accountable. That it would be your argument, right? Manafort and Papadopoulos and. I mean, look, accountable, like there's all kinds of accountability other than criminal accountability. Trump was uh, was voted out of office. Um, that's accountability. Um, I mean, most of the time, accountability doesn't really happen through the criminal justice system. I mean, if you're playing cards with your family and you cheat, you know, no one's going to show up at your door and put you in jail. But there's some accountability because if you cheat, then people call you a cheater and they won't play with you anymore. You know, it's like the, the criminal... The criminal justice system isn't intended to solve all of our problems. I think that's such a key point, that the criminal justice system can't solve political problems. People think there's no accountability because they think it's going to accomplish something it won't accomplish, you know? But we can't change politics using the justice system. We can only change politics using 
politics, right? Because like you said, there's always going to be a Josh Hawley and a Ron DeSantis and somebody waiting in the wings to take over. So even if we end up putting 100 top-level Trump people in jail, there's still people who will take up that mantle. Mm -hmm. So those changes need to be accounted for in the lane that they belong, which is politics and democracy, not criminal justice. Right. And the Trump organization has been indicted as far as you know, Trump's inner circle. Um, what could happen? Well, how about dismantling his, his financial empire? Um, calling it all, he, he could, this could ruin him financially. Um, you know, we could list the people who, right, they were pardoned, but um, Flynn pleaded guilty. Um, Manafort spent time in jail. Michael Cohen, as his lawyer, was indicted and served time in jail. So it's also just not true that nobody in his inner circle has been indicted or has served time in jail. Not for the insurrection, but that's ongoing. So there's a way sometimes we're, yeah. we're fuzzy with language. So yes, we are. None of them are indicted. I think it's. A, I don't think we want them to be indicted. I think. I think we want to see suffering. And like, we want to see people behind bars. You know, I think that's where people are at. When they say accountability, they say like, go eat in the, you know, where somebody who stole a backpack and is living at Rikers, go there. You know, I think that's the accountability people are hoping for. And I think people are very nervous that what do we do if we lose the house in 2022? Which by the way, to anyone watching or listening, this is not a done deal and we absolutely cannot let that happen. But in your legal perspective, what happens to the January 6th committee or to the DOJ investigations if the Republicans take the House in 2022? Absolutely nothing. Is it dead? No. The, DO, the, um, okay. the committee will be finished. They keep pushing back when their hearings are going to be because they keep interviewing more people and getting more information, which gives you a little bit of a sense of what's happening in the DOJ. There's so much information. Um, but they're still talking about um, early spring um, for hearings, but they will definitely be finished by November. And the DOJ continues as long as we have a Democratic president. Okay, so that would be 2024. Right. So it would be a disaster. It would carry on right. even if... Even if you lose in 2020, it has nothing to do with the DOJ, which continues under Biden. And um, it has nothing to do with the committee, which is going to be finished by, by the fall. And what happens if we lose the presidency in 2024, which, by the way, again, cannot happen. It but cannot what happen. would happen to the rule of law in that case? Well, OK, so we talk about like unnecessary, necessary and sufficient conditions. So people think indicting Trump or bringing everybody to prison will somehow save democracy. It won't. Winning the presidency again will. Because if we lose the White House, then all these guys are pardoned. And democracy often used to end with a bang, you know, like the Pinochet um, coup, military coup, it used to end with this big bang. But what happens now, and you can see it all over Europe, you can see it in um, Orban, Victor Orban and Argentina, what happens is that people elect a lawbreaker to office. People elect as president somebody who is anti-democratic. And then once they're in office, they, they take it apart. And we saw how Trump did that. So the way democracy, the quickest way democracy will end in America is if Americans vote Republicans into power. The way I see that happening is sometimes I'm afraid that not enough people care about rule of law and democracy. People who say they are are attacking the people who are trying to defend rule of law and democracy. And so I always say democracy will survive if enough people want it to and are willing to do the work. Ukraine is demonstrating this. And people hear that and they think I'm optimistic, but there's a word if in that sentence. 
and it's a big word, if enough people wanted to, at, the thing about democracy is at any given time, a majority of people can vote to end it. And then bye-bye. Yeah. You also said if enough people are willing to do the work. And that, I think, is important. And I don't think work, uh, someone got mad at me when I said this, but angry tweeting isn't, isn't work. Isn't work. <laughs> isn't work. Yeah. I, I mean, register voters, get, figure out how to get people to the polls, figure out what you can do. Um, it's all about turnout. And I don't think it's particularly um, helpful if you want to see the Democrats continue in power to keep attacking Democrats. Maybe I've got to seems odd to me, um, but you know, attacking Democrats, attacking um, Biden, attacking um, his administration may not be the best strategy if you want to keep the Republicans out of office. What about the power of the pardon? Can we do anything to limit that? If we get the Republicans back in office, like you said, they're just going to pardon each other. Can the power of the pardon be limited? Well, the, unfortunately, the pardon power is in the Constitution, and it's fairly unlimited. Yeah. What the founders imagined was that a law-breaking president or somebody who abused his powers and pardoned like his friends in a corrupt manner would then be removed from office by the Senate and would also um, not be reelected. In this case, we have someone who's who the Senate protected and will actively reelect. And that is what the founding fathers could not have planned for. It's, it's really, that's why I say it's really mostly about the elections. I mean, it's all about the elections, not mostly, all about the elections. Right. So the concept of creating a better democracy being a constant and work and effort and how it's a never-ending task um, to follow the rule of law, to talk about making laws, to do things by the book. And people find that boring and people don't like boring, right? They like fireworks and they like drama. And that's why Trump was so appealing in the first place and why the mainstream media has so much trouble quitting him, you know? Rules are annoying and they get in the way of what we want. We want immediacy. We want this to happen now, which I think is why autocracy is so appealing, right? It's because autocrats don't answer to anyone and they can get things done quickly and they can make promises and then deliver on those promises because they don't have to go through any red tape. They can fire people up, us versus them, battling the enemies, you know, just get her done. And then they ultimately end up just taking care of themselves and their people, which we can see is exactly what the Trump administration, family, and inner circle would do, take care of themselves. We saw that in their first administration. God forbid we give them a second administration to do it even better with no checks or balances. Um, Trump gives us a great show, and Garland is boring and busy and methodical and quiet, right? People call you a Garland defender, but you aren't so much that as a rule of law defender, I would say, right? You seem to worry about the future of democracy as much as anyone. You're just coming at it from a different angle. Um, and I think you said it well when you said the danger you see is that people don't actually like democracy and the rule of law. Can you speak to that? Autocracy has a lot of appeal because you can get your way. That's what the autocrat promises. You get, there's no red tape. Get it done right now. Um, out with due process. To process and rules slow things down. It makes it makes it very it makes it harder to put people in jail, and that's good because if it's too easy to be to put people in jail, it will be the vulnerable who are who are the ones that that falls on. And um, I think yeah, a lot of people get frustrated and they they want their way. So when my son was three, he came home and he told me that today we learned to take turns. And then he said, but I don't want to take turns. 
I'm on all the turns. <laughs> and I, I thought I thought it was very accurate. <laughs> and yeah, I'm not sure we grow. Yeah, out. I want all the turns. That's exactly where America is right now. I'm not sure we run out. I'm not sure we really grow out of the the fact that democracy is slow grinding work. You have to knock on doors. You have to get people to vote. You have to um, you have to get your message out. You have to compromise. You're not especially right now. We have just a a majority in the Senate by a hair, only sometimes, right? So when you don't have a majority, when it's 50-50 like that, you have to compromise. You can't get everything you want. And um, and the only solution is to elect more senators that are Democrats. And it's a it's slow grinding work. And um, I don't think people, um, a lot of people don't really want something that's slow and grinding and um, well, it goes back to what you said about the law in general. We have to manage expectations, right? That we all want what we want on a scale of one to 100. And most of us, are want, we all want 100, but it's not what we're going to get. So we have to manage expectations and know it's going to take work to get to 50, to get to 60, to get to 70. And we have to kind of keep going. Um, when the history of this era is told, God hope us, we're all still here and the planet's still here. What do you think it'll be focusing on? I think that what we're in right now is an information disruption with how we get our information oh. and social media. Um, Timothy Snyder talks about this. He compares the advent of the internet to the printing press. And the thing about the printing press is before the printing press, there were lies, you know, there were myths, but the printing press sent people did people got things in writing and they thought it was true. They didn't know how to evaluate written sources. And, um, Lies spread very quickly um, with the printing press. And also, um, the printing press really ignited the Protestant Reformation, which killed a lot of Europe. So you think, okay, well, uh, it's a good invention, but it actually was destructive because when, when your way of life is completely disrupted in this way, it takes a while to adjust. And with the internet, it has so disrupted how we get our information. Not that long ago, you got your news twice a day, the morning newspaper, maybe the evening newspaper. So you saw the headlines, you read the stories. We're on a 24-hour news cycle. And it's not just the, that the internet has changed how we get information, but mainstream media is now competing for viewers. So we talked about, you, you mentioned that Trump puts on a good show. Well, when the news is about entertainment, then whoever puts on the best show wins. And so you have this... So you have lies, conspiracy theories spreading very rapidly on the internet on both sides of the political spectrum. So any a conspiracy theory, what is that? That's a simple explanation for something complicated. So, well, Garland didn't bring this indictment, therefore he must be corrupt. And then that spreads like wildfire when there's absolutely no evidence to support it. So I think that the, the battle for democracy is really in how disinformation is being disseminated and facts are getting lost. We lose the facts and so much of it is speculation and so much of it is theories and so much of it is um, invented. Whereas in the old days, when you got your newspaper twice a day, there was the editorial page over here, then there were the facts over here. And the news was boring. I remember, I'm older than you. I remember turning on the television and there was Walter Cronkite just kind of reciting this monologue. And it was like, bah, 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 boring. And, but he was just giving people facts. 
Um, and so I think that the that this is all tied up. Everything we talked about is tied up in how people get information and how they process information. Right. And the fact that it's so new. It's so new. I mean, you said the printing press, right? And it took us years to adjust to how to function with the information in our hands. And we got to this point where you said, "There's here's the news section and here's the editorials. We learned over time, this is the best way to disseminate information to people. And now we have this new form of way to disseminate information and we haven't yet learned how to properly do it, except we're at a crisis point with this new form. So if we're looking back at the history of this era, it'll be that this was a bit of a crisis for how we knew or didn't know what was really going on and made our decisions based on that. And I, I think if democracy doesn't survive or if democracy goes out, comes back in, because that happens sometimes, a, a country can lose its democracy and gain it back. Um, I think if we do, hit us, if Republicans get it back into office, I, I think that uh, historians will say it was the disruption in information and it was... Um, it was the fact that a headline will say, here's the real reason Merrick Garland isn't indicting Trump. And people take that as truth instead of speculation. And this is exactly why everyone should stop reading immediate tweets and go right to Terry's oh, blog no. and read the facts. Oh. As as Walter Cronkite as it is, this is exactly what we need. We need the actual facts and the actual information. I mean, Terry, you're just amazing. I learned so much from you and I can only hope my listeners will take the time to follow you and take advantage of your calm brilliance as we move forward because we definitely need less of uh, the noise as we move through this period. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am deeply grateful for you taking the time. And we all need to know that, that democracy is really on the edge and it's up to us to work and fight to keep it alive. Thank you, Terry. Thank you. So that was Terry Canefield author, lawyer, and absolutely brilliant legal mind, reminding us that just because we aren't seeing the results we want in the timing we'd like, it doesn't mean justice isn't happening. In fact, the very idea that we're seeing so little is probably pretty good news for the health of our rule of law. We can't rush the process or abandon the rules simply because we want what we want. That is exactly what those we want to hold accountable want us to do. We aren't the same. But if we throw out the rule book to get results, we will be. One party is ready to abandon democracy and the rule of law, and we cannot help them do that. So no matter how hungry we are for justice, we have to play by the rules if we want to keep living in a country with rules. It's frustrating, I know, but I will take frustrating over terrifying any day. Now go out and make the world a better place. Thank you for caring enough about democracy to be here. Until next week, PG out. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.